Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. This is Off Track with Hinch and Rossi. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Off Track with Hinch and Rossi. I, of course, am James Hinchcliffe, the shorter, pastier, more Canadian of the two. We have something very special for you today. It's actually an Off Track first. You see, Alex, Thim, and I were listening to our interview with John Green, author of books like Fault in Our Stars, Turtles All the Way Down. You know his books, and you know the movies that they made from those books. You may have also heard that Fault in Our Stars just got greenlit to be made into a Bollywood movie, which I personally cannot wait to see. He started the foundation to decrease world suck, and he's doing amazing things to literally save the world. Anyway, Alex and I were listening to the interview, and we couldn't bring ourselves to cut it. We usually have to trim these things down to give you the best parts, but there were just too many good parts. So, we hope you enjoy this off-track's first two-parter with the amazing man himself, John Green. But before we get into that... Off Track with Hinch and Rossi is a CastBox original. CastBox is the fastest-growing, highest-rated podcast app on both iOS and Android where you can find all your favorite podcasts. You can listen to Off Track with Hinch and Rossi wherever you get your podcasts, but we hope you'll give CastBox a shot. We think it's the best. I know that first world problems are still problems. You literally said last week how much this pissed you off. The most frustrating thing. All right. Jeez. Let's move yeah. on. I'm glad that's over. Here's, Here's what, what grinds, grinds my gears. gears. James, I've uh, got something that grinds my gears. Alex. Lately. I've just uh, Alex, I've realized it. Tell me all about it. I've known it for a while, but I've kind of buried it deep down. As you should with most emotion. Yep. All emotion, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I was, I was flying... And um, bought the in-flight Wi-Fi. Okay. And it was the most abysmal, (laughs) useless 16... No, I'm sorry, $26 that I have ever spent for a two-hour and 45-minute journey once we were in the air and everything. And I actually finally decided to buy it because I couldn't even, like, load my Instagram account. I couldn't even load iMessages. I had to try and like communicate with people via email. I might as well have been trying to send carrier pigeons out the plane at 35,000 feet. I've flown on like, um, what is it, Virgin America? Sure. They've got free Wi-Fi. Which is nice. Which is nice. That actually, it hey, worked Every right. other airline, listen up. It worked all right. I understand your frustration. I do. $26 Let, for, not, and it's 2018. Right. So for, me, for internet where you can't even load a picture or no, sorry, you can't even load a text message. Right. So couple, couple things, couple things. First of all, when the page came up and said, Hey, for this two hour flight, would you like internet? It's only going to cost $26. At that point alone, you should have stopped. This, 
This conversation should have stopped at, I can't believe X airline was charging $26 for internet because that's insane. But you did it. You did it. Anyway. I didn't say it was wise. You did it anyway. I didn't and say it was so, a good here's the thing. use of money. What, what, I, what you're asking me to do is you're asking me to be upset that while hurtling through the air at nearly 700 miles an hour in an aluminum tube, you're upset that your cell phone can't load your Instagram fast enough. Yeah. In the grand scheme of life, man, I got to say, there's, God, there's not a whole lot to be upset about there. You've got a cell phone that can load Instagram on the ground. You have a aluminum tube that is hurtling you through the air at 700 miles an hour to the destination of your choice. No, no, no. But the thing is, I'm not, I'm not upset about the, you're, you're absolutely right. It's amazing the world that we live in. I know that first no, world problems no, are still problems. They are but still problems. No, this no, no, is, no, 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 no. Just, just hear me out. Okay. The technology exists because I have witnessed it firsthand on other forms of aircraft to where you can have very functional Wi-Fi. I mean, hell, the president can run the country from Air Force One. Don't tell me that his internet connection isn't working that well. Bro, look, we sent a guy to the moon, a bunch of them, actually. Um, that happened, by so, the way, so for what, those of you that think that maybe there's, there's some debate and there. That Earth actually happened. And is also round. What really, what really also makes me upset still is the fact that they have the audacity, and it grinds my gears. Tell me about it. Frankly. Tell me. That they think that they can charge any amount of money yep. for a product that, that should be free in the first place. Let's yep. be honest. I mean, I mean it's 2018. Yeah. I mean, if we want to transition this, like, let's talk about hotels. You're spending... You're spending $150 to $400 okay. a night, and you have to pay another $19.99? No, no, no. That to one have, I'm with you on. To have basic internet? That one I'm and with And then you if on. you want enhanced internet, you have to pay $25.99. Look, you stay at a Holiday Inn Express for $89 a night, you get free internet. You right. stay at the, the Ritz-Carlton Ritz for $4.50 a night, you got to pay. It's, it's, it's it, it criminal. It should be illegal. absolutely ridiculous. I agree with you on that one. Super relatable, because most of our listeners stay at the Ritz-Carlton often. So, <laughs> so the funny thing, the best part about what Fim just said is nobody asked you. <laughs> that was that was the best part of that one. I'm with you. I get what you're saying. Sam, shut up. Okay, so can you not be with me on the fact that no, if they are, if they're advertising a service, turn your phone off. No, I, dude, I'm with you that if you advertise a service, it should it should look. They put a man on the moon, don't, and don't the radio communications don't. worked all the way to the moon. Here's the thing. It costs a lot more than 26 bucks to send Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Mike Collins, and company to the moon. I agree with you in principle, but like, it's not something I'm going to get super upset about because it's insane that we can get internet on an airplane. Like, I think that's an, it's crazy that this world that doesn't even exist, it just flies around in ones and zeros, can be accessible anywhere. The fact that you want to do it while you're at 35,000 feet at 700 miles an hour and it's a little patchy. Look, life's, I mean, life, life's hard. I don't know what you want me to say. You're right. Life is really hard. Yeah. So thanks. And that, and that grinds your gears. I, I appreciate you recognizing that. Just a quick note. Michael Collins was in the command module. He did not uh, get to step on the Who surface. is? So I know that. I know that. He still went to the moon. He just didn't go on around, the moon. He went around it. Have you been around the moon lately? You don't, you don't know what I do Shh. in my personal life. Shh. I know what you don't do. It's go around the moon. Grinds my gears. Hello and welcome back, guys, to Off Track with Hinch and Rossi. I am Hinch. 
And I am Alex Rossi. And this week, we have uh, an exceptionally special guest that we Far are... Far more talented than us. In many, many ways. And we are thrilled and excited and thankful that he decided to join us. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. John Green. Hi. How's it going, guys? Very well. How are you? Good, good. It is super convenient that you live in Indianapolis. Yeah, no, and nice for me as well, because it's so easy to get to the track. So let's... <laughs> <laughs> So speaking of dogs, yeah. John, we we uh, we saw your latest video, um, yeah. about your dog. Yeah. So How's Willie doing? He's doing all right. Willie has cancer, and he's he's at the end of his life, and it's uh, it's rough, man. I mean, somebody told me that owning a dog is making an appointment with grief, and that's true. I mean, you know, dogs have a lifespan, and yeah, it's all right. You know, the thing about Willie though is that I made that video, and I thought this is it. You know, like we really thought we were going in the next day or so. And then he just perked right back up. And he's been great the last few days. He's been in great spirits. So who knows? I, Willie's uh, had cancer for two years. So I, I, I'm not writing him off at this point. Who knows? Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, you know, we, we sit here uh, doing a, a new podcast. You yourself have a new podcast. Yeah, I have a new podcast called The Anthropocene Reviewed, in which I review a, a weird random stuff on a five-star scale. Uh, so I, I gave... <laughs> I think I gave Canada Geese two stars, and I gave Diet Dr. Pepper five stars. But I also, uh, the one I'm writing now, I'm reviewing uh, turf grass, the like yeah. lawn grass that's everywhere on earth now. It's, With, the, it's in Ryan Hunter Ray's backyard. Yes. It, that's, it, that's what he put in his backyard. Yeah. And then um, I'm also reviewing uh, Super Mario Kart and uh, Googling Strangers. So you're reviewing Super Mario Kart. Yeah. What, like, what does that entail? Well, in this case, sort of an overview of the 25 years of uh, the various Super Mario Karts. Uh, and, and what's the best? Well, this is important because you're looking at some Super Mario Kart diehard fans. You so. got to understand that I'm 15 years older than you, probably. You don't so, look it. Uh, that's very kind of you, but you'll find this as you get older. If you just gain 30 pounds, you can continue to look young. If you just gain like <laughs> five pounds a year forever, you continue to have a baby face forever. <laughs> So I, the 1992 original Super Mario Kart is a fantastic game. Right. Um, the new Mario Kart 8 that I have for the, my Nintendo Switch is also a good game, but I, I'm always going to love the 1992 Mario Kart. That was, on, that was on Super Nintendo, right? Yeah. Yeah. What's your Mario Kart game? Mario Kart 64. We play a lot of 64. Do you I, really? We, yeah. we actually each have an N64. And we put it on our motorhomes that travel to the racetracks. And really? Marco Andretti, Alex Rossi, Connor Daly, myself, occasionally producer Thim. Uh, we dive into some some Mario Kart during rain delays or you know night races early in the day or just like or just to get in the zone before qualifying. It's true. Yeah. Do you <laughs> feel like you're better because of your profession at Mario Kart than the average person? So if we were talking like a general racing game, be it Forza, Project Cars, Gran Turismo, I would say absolutely. Uh, the fact that producer Thim, who's never driven anything in his entire life, regularly like schools destroys all four us. us yes. I'm gonna say no. Okay. My daughter insists that I am a professional race car driver. Like when people ask what uh, <laughs> I do, my daughter tells them that, daddy, that, that her daddy is a race car driver. That, and how, old your, how old your daughter? She's four. Okay. And I was, I did one race on a dirt track for charity when she was like two and a half. And okay. it made a big impression. <laughs> Not least because my car caught fire and I hit the wall. And I mean, I, I, it turns out, surprisingly enough, a Poor race car driver. <laughs> Were those separate incidents, the fire on the wall, or was that like a one did one? Right. So I other? hit the wall. I hit the wall going, I would estimate like one half of one mile per hour. So I I had almost come to a full stop before I hit the wall. I just tapped the wall. And then I I was ready to start uh start the car again. 
but then all these people were running up to me because my car With was fire on fire. Starters. <laughs> <laughs> Where was this? Uh, it was in Minnesota. All right. Yeah, a little dirt track in Minnesota. It was a lot of fun, but I have no uh, talent for it. However, it made this huge impression on my daughter, and I got a trophy, uh, whereas in most of my work, I don't get trophies. So... Do you correct her? Oh, yeah. No, oh, I say, like, I'm not bad. a race car driver, Alice. Like, we, we know some race car drivers, but I'm not one of them. And then she says, but you did race in a race car. And I'm like, you know, touche. <laughs> Man, that's bad when already at four, they're countering your oh, arguments oh, yeah, in no. ways that you can't really fight. No, I can't win. <laughs> that's bad. Okay, so let's, while the racing conversation started, uh, as, I, as I believe, if I've, if I've read correctly, you were born in Indianapolis, though you didn't stay here long. Right. I moved when I was six weeks old. Yes. So I don't have a great memory of my childhood in Indianapolis. But my dad grew up uh, going to the race, um, went to the race every year when he was a kid. And uh, we had the chance to move back here, although I had no relationship with Indianapolis in 2007. My wife is a curator of contemporary art, and she got a job at the IMA. And we okay. moved back here. And So kind of coincidence. It was actually her, her Total job coincidence, that, yeah. Oh, wow. But uh, I really fell in love with Indianapolis. I love... I love it here. Um, IndyCar is part of the reason I love it. I mean, when, when we first moved here, I had no friends. I knew no one. Uh, and I met uh, someone in our neighborhood. And essentially, all of the friends that I have made in the 10 years that I've lived in Indianapolis are through this IndyCar Fantasy League that I've been part of for the last 10 years. <laughs> so I'm very grateful for that. And it's been a really wonderful decade that we've had here. And now we're very settled here. I can't imagine living anywhere else. So this IndyCar Fantasy League, yeah. I was uh, told in 2015, you kept a certain driver on your team, even though he was incapacitated, <laughs> severely not driving a race car. Yeah, um, I did. James. So, I did. I mean, that pretty, was very kind of you, cool. sir. That was very kind of you. I did not draw a pinch for the for the whole season. That was that is that is very sweet. I mean, what do you see in James? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> he saw well, how fast I drove that uh, wheelchair out of the hospital, <laughs> and he's like, "Kids got some." <laughs> uh, yeah, I just thought it seemed like the right right thing to do. Um, and yeah, I've always I've always been an admirer of you as a driver in the way you go about your work in the community and everything. And I, and I really. Uh, yeah, I've just looked up to that, so it was it was a little small way that I could uh, say thank you for that. I have to say, for the record, that in any race, we have four drivers apiece, and in any race, only your top three drivers count. So I was really just saying that oh, I wasn't... Okay. <laughs> I, it's not like I was throwing the fantasy league. I was just saying my, like my top three drivers are so You're just good. You committed to them. You yeah. Know, you, you, there was no alternate there. Right. Copy. All right, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> that's fair. I'll, I'll still take it. I'll still take it. Did you, do you remember your first Indy 500 that you went to? Have you, have you been to many? I do. I go every year. Um, it's a huge part of my life. It's my... It, it's my favorite day of the year. It's it's Christmas for me. We usually I, I take the kids to pole day and uh, we we go to a lot of the qualification days as well. But my first Indy 500 was was in 2007. Okay. Um, oh, it's great fun. What's uh, what's an IndyCar race you haven't been to that you like? It's not a, a bucket list race to go to. So I grew up in Alabama mm -hmm. um, and I've been to Barber a lot of times, but I've never been there to see an IndyCar race. Really? And that would be really fun. The though. IndyCar series would love to have you as a guest. If sure. You no, come I'd down. love to. I'd love to come down for bring that the one. family. And I've always wanted to go to. St. Pete. My friends have all been to St. Pete, and they all talk about how fun it awesome. is. Awesome! It's a great race. Toronto is yeah. a great race. Toronto's a great race. Yeah, Toronto's cool. Yeah, there's a couple you should check out. I have some issues with uh, getting into Canada because I was denied entry in uh, 1995 due to <laughs> insufficient funds. You can be denied entry into Canada for you can insufficient funds. Yeah, I was just trying to go for the day, and I had a loaf of bread and uh, some peanut butter and a, a two-liter root beer. Um, so I was good. Yeah. I was going to be fine. Um, but it's a week's worth of food. <laughs> it's a week's supply. Yeah, I could have stayed for a while. Yeah. 
But they, uh, yeah, I got pulled into the, and they asked me how much money I had. I didn't have any credit cards or anything because I was 18. And uh, they, they turned me around, which was fine. No big deal. I, didn't, I don't harbor a grudge at all. The problem is that now I am permanently on a list of potential undesirables. So every time I go to Canada, I'm taken into like a windowless room. You go and to the penalty box. The first thing they ask me is, have you ever been denied entrance into Canada? And I say, yes. <laughs> have you... Have you- explains to them yet that you oh, yeah, have a yeah, yeah, movie yeah, yeah. I've, I've explained them that like things like... have there's been a big there's been a big <laughs> okay. shift all right in my <laughs> quality of life in a bunch of different ways and i feel really qualified to come to canada and make sure that i'm going to be able to have enough money to get out or i wouldn't be coming and uh yeah they i asked somebody once i said is there anything that i can do to get on the list and the very polite of course <laughs> extraordinarily polite they're always wonderful Sorry, to work with but, yeah. um he said yeah he said you're going to die on the list no that was his, those were his exact words. Oh, can't can't get yourself off that no. at all. Huh? So what you know? So I don't know if I'm going to go to Toronto. That's Nothing fair. personal. No, that's fair. Yeah. I uh, I'm I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed <laughs> in my in my people's way of dealing with this issue. It I I really it, it's not their fault. It's really it's my fault for trying to enter Canada with forty three dollars and a I loaf didn't know of that bread. that was illegal though. Like I didn't realize that made you an undesirable. I, I, feel I don't like think I've they have the border to border with admit anyone that. entry, right? Like they don't have no, to they let an American in, so it's up to them. You can stay in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram at at askofftrack. Or you can take a screenshot of this episode and share it on your Instagram or Snapchat story. We're also taking emails at ask at offtrackpod.com and phone calls at 317-731-2372. That's ask at offtrackpod.com and 317-731-2372. If we like what you have to say, we'll mention it on the next show. So you better make it good. We're also on Twitter at at Hinchtown and at Alexander Rossi. And of course, Thim is available at at the Tim Durham. We're going to get that switched to at the Thim Durham any day now. A lot of people now know you as author, John Green, but you kind of first got some notoriety online with, with YouTube. Yeah. So explain that, the the, the project. Uh, brother, was it Brothers 2.0? Yeah, Brother 2.0. Yeah, I'd, I'd published a couple books before we started that, but they hadn't reached particularly broad audiences, I guess would be the generous way of saying it. Um, I mean, books in general are, it's pretty small, small world, but my brother and I started making video blogs back and forth to each other on January 1st, 2007. And for a whole year, every weekday, one of us would make a video or the other. And we intended it as a project for us to get closer because I left for boarding school when my brother was 11. I never really knew him that well. I always admired him a lot, but I, I never knew him that well. And, um, it was a chance to try to get to know each other better, but it was also a public conversation that we were trying to involve people in. And it grew, you know, beyond anything that we, we had ever imagined. And this was your only form of communication. Yeah. So we only talked via these video blogs. And if we uh, communicated textually, we would, we would get punished. And sometimes the punishment <laughs> would be like eating a blenderized Happy Meal or... Oh, wow. Uh, Did that happen? Yeah. One time I had to eat like 17 peeps in, uh, in one minute. Which oh. I can't recommend. No, I don't think you should eat seventeen peeps in one lifetime. That's a really good point. I think <laughs> I think that's what the CDC recommends. I think it's <laughs> up to sixteen in a life. Yeah, no doubt. And where did the inspiration for that come from? Because I mean, that's that's an amazing idea. And, yeah, well, it was I mean, so early on. It's kind of before people were doing this kind of thing. It started for us because we really liked video as a kind of center for forming communities. 
There was a guy named Zay Frank who now heads up BuzzFeed's video projects who had a show uh, and the people who watched that show would do projects together like they would play him in chess but they would collectively decide what the next move was things like that that we found really interesting and kind of compelling and so i think what we really wanted to do was to build a community like that one okay if you could communicate with only one medium for the rest of your life what would it be are we are we looking at a social media are we looking at vlogging are we looking at texting what, what, what's your jam i think i would use real life I think we might have been underappreciating real life this whole time. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Do you mean like face-to-face interaction with humans? What I'm proposing? Like FaceTime? I, yeah. <laughs> Skype. <laughs> okay, uh, that I can get behind. What, what, what he was talking about sounded scary. John, I'm not sure I'm, I'm not sure I understand what you're getting at here. Well, I can't I don't think I can I don't think I can beat Alex's joke, so I think we've just <laughs> gotta move on to the next question. It was too good. That was that was pretty solid, Woo. actually. <laughs> um, do you do you consider like writing your books a way of kind of this communication with people? I mean, in yeah. a remote, removed way, or yeah, in a very removed way. I mean, I sometimes liken it to you know that childhood pool game Marco Polo. Mm-hmm. I sometimes liken it to that. Like you you spend like three or four years in your basement writing, and in a way, you're saying Marco, 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 <laughs> Marco the whole time, like waiting for someone to say Polo back, right? And uh, and then when the book comes out, hopefully people do. I've always liked it as a form of communication because in real life I'm pretty shy and it can be difficult for me to express myself or to articulate things that are really important to me. And writing for me has always been a way to try to do that. And I like being alone in that work for long periods of time, but that at the same time it's very isolating, very lonely. So it feels really good when people actually they find validate, the work. They validate that. Yeah, yeah. So what was the book where people said polo? I mean... Uh, I mean couple people said polo after my first couple books, but it wasn't when The Fault in Our Stars came out. That was when uh, it, it was really overwhelming. All of a sudden, you know, it, it felt like instead of having a, a really lovely career writing books, I was going to have a, a different career from the one that I, I'd imagined for myself. What was that transition like? You know, this, this book comes out, I think it was number one bestseller within a week. Yeah. Week or two. And yeah. That's, yeah. you know, a bit of uncharted territory. What, what was that transition like from kind of... And did you know when it was good? Like when you sent it out? I did not know that it was better than my other books. I mean, I really enjoyed writing it. It was really cathartic to write. It was difficult to write. I mean, I was, in a lot of ways, I was writing in response to grief. I'd, I'd lost a friend, a young friend to cancer, and, um, and I wrote the book kind of in a, in a furious, angry, sad period after that. And I felt good about the story, but I didn't know, you know, I had no way of knowing if people were going to respond to it. When it came out, it became clear pretty early on that it was going to be very different from my previous books. When well, it, it was. Yeah, and it was, it was way different. I mean, it, it was vastly different. And I mean, did that change your, I mean, it changed your life from the... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I bought, uh, I bought my dream car, a 2012 Chevy Volt. Oh. That was, that was your dream car. Yeah, I mean, have you ever driven a Volt? Because it's zero, zero to 20. It's amazing. <laughs> right. So torquey. Yeah. <laughs> Can you kind of, Put us in your shoes a little bit. I mean, how do you being at the time, right, a 30-year-old guy who hasn't had kids yet, how are you writing this beautiful book that has now touched so many millions of people from the eyes of a young girl? I actually finished it about a year after my son was born. And I found that incredibly helpful because it wasn't until I had a kid that I really understood 
that in in one sense at least at least love genuinely is stronger than death that that you know no matter what your religious beliefs are when my grandfather died he is still my grandfather and when someone you love dies the relationship that that you have with them doesn't end and understanding that in the moment that H- henry was born i understood that as long as henry or i uh, am alive i will be his father and he will be my son and i think that insight allowed me to write the book with hope which otherwise i was struggling to do i was struggling to find anything other than kind of despair in, in, inside of it and and as far as like how do you write from the perspective of a teenager i don't really know i mean i didn't really know what it was like to be a teenager when i was a teenager like i wasn't particularly i didn't like know the slang you, or you like, weren't good at it <laughs> yeah yeah i did not this is going to surprise you guys but i did not crush it as a teenager <laughs> i am shocked <laughs> um, i'm genuinely shocked yeah but I think the emotional experiences are pretty universal. Like the feeling of falling in love for the first time, there's an intensity to it that falling in love for the second time is great. And I'm very grateful that I got to fall in love a second time because it meant that I, you know, didn't end up marrying the, the, my first love, right. who's a lovely person. Just <laughs> throwing that out there. In yeah, case she's listening. Yeah. Uh, but falling in love for the second time, you're like, this is wonderful, but it also reminds me of the previous time that that this happened. Whereas when you fall in love for the first time, you're like, oh man, this has never happened in all of human history. Like this is a completely unprecedented experience. Feeling that newness of asking big questions, of of looking at the big questions of life or of those big experiences like falling in love or dealing with grief or whatever, feeling that newness is really appealing to me because there's no irony in it. There's no distance from it. You know, one of the great things about teenagers is they it's so intense. And so I like trying to like go back to that place and write from that perspective. Do you see the books as a, cause I know that from what I've read, you know, you like to engage with the audience and I mean, are the books a way to then kind of have a platform to teach these young adults afterwards? That's an interesting question. I mean, I, I, I don't think that books, um, should be in the like, uh, education business and, or novels shouldn't in the, in the sense of like teaching lessons or, straightforward moral uh compass guideline right yeah i don't think that they should be like ethical guidelines to to life or whatever but i do think that whether you write for young people or not i think you you, or I, i at least feel a responsibility to my audience to try to tell an honest story and i do feel like the truth is ultimately always hopeful like i feel like nihilism and despair are dishonest and or or at least like not well thought out and so I do, I do feel a responsibility in, in that sense to try to be hopeful while still being honest. So you, you write this book, it takes off, uh, although it's, uh, I, I kind of want to talk about the transition into a movie and w- what yeah. it's like having, having your novel turned into a feature film. Pretty intense, <laughs> pretty weird. Cool phone call to get, I bet. But you, you actually sold a book first that never got made, right? Yeah, I, it wasn't a cool phone call to get because b- by the <laughs> oh. time I sold the rights to Fault in Our Stars, I was convinced that... I was essentially scamming Hollywood. That, <laughs> I think it's okay. They've done it enough. It's yeah, fun. but my feeling was, oh, they'll never make this movie, but it's nice of them to send me this check for the option. Right. Uh, and then I read the screenplay that uh, Neustadter and Weber wrote, and when I read the screenplay, I do remember thinking, oh, my God, like they might make this movie. And from there, they did. I got so lucky. I mean, I think it's very rare that authors have good movie experiences, but I had a really, two really lovely ones where I felt included in every part of the process. I never felt like my voice wasn't heard. I never felt like they were trying to betray anything that was important in the story. 
and the kids who were in the movie, the, everybody who was in the movie were just wonderful people and people I, I, you know, I still talk to and still think really highly of. So I got super lucky. And, um, but probably the coolest thing to come out of it is that I, I, I think if they hadn't made the movies, I wouldn't have been the, um, pace car driver at the Angie's List Grand Prix, <laughs> which was, where's that rank as you know, highlight perks of the job? Uh, Top five for sure, <laughs> just because it's the first time all of my friends were properly jealous of me, <laughs> or they are properly impressed by my uh, <laughs> by my achievements. Fair, fair. Yeah. I get that at home. I, I make the joke, but it's not a joke at all. You know, I, I grew up with this this group of buddies back home in, in Toronto, and uh, they always knew me as the the guy that raced. Like I had a go kart when I was nine. I met them. I was already racing, so it wasn't a thing. That wasn't a thing for them. So when I made it to IndyCar, they're like. Yeah, that's what you do. And then one day I came home and I was like, guys, I'm getting a beer named after me. They're like, that is by far the coolest thing that you've ever accomplished in your entire life. Yeah, yeah, no. So for me, driving the pace car was the equivalent of getting the beer. Which segues nicely into a question we like to ask all of our guests, all of our guests on Off Track. Uh, what is the fastest you've ever driven? I assume this might be correlated to your pace car experience. Actually not. Oh, here we go. This is good. Because you said, you know, zero to 20 in your in your Volt, so. Well, also, you got to remember, it's the Grand Prix. So I drove the pace lap at, I think, a top speed of maybe 65. In fact, I, I think, um, who had the pole? What year was it? 2016? 2015? No, it was Pagano. Pagano had the pole. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Pagano right. had the pole, and he was he kept he kept getting real close, yeah. real and that. But my instinct then is to slow down. Really? Yeah. Oh no, that normally is supposed to scare you to go. Faster. No, no, no. What it made me want to do is like I'll show you. I'm uh, deciding the pace of the pace lap. That would have gone down poorly if you. Great, checked him. No, no, that would have been hilarious. <laughs> I would have been totally for that. But no, I, I like that you kind of stamped your authority on the whole thing. The fastest I've ever driven is in Montana on a very flat, uh, long stretch of road in a place where there is no speed limits. And I don't think I got to triple digits, but I was close. Close to it. And what were you in? <sighs> I mean, like a Volkswagen Passat, I think. Okay. So it's not a particularly glorious car. Although I, the fastest I've ever been in a car right. was the two-seater. Yes. Where'd you do that? At the Speedway? At the Speedway. Yeah. Was Mario driving you? No. Uh, Sarah Fisher was driving. And it was like 180, I think. And, yeah. the, and I was screaming at her to pull <laughs> the car over. Really? And she, You didn't enjoy she it? She says she couldn't hear me. I had a great time in retrospect. Yes. It's one of those things that you only enjoy later. You think you know what it's like to drive a race car because you drive a car. On some level, if you can just get in that two-seater and you can think, okay, they're going 40 miles an hour faster, and they're also making the choices involved in how fast they go and where they are, and then you think about how close the racing is, when that hits home for you, it completely changes your relationship with race car driving. I mean, to me, what you guys do is like a superpower. We need to like take that. Yeah, that's just going to be a new IndyCar campaign. Absolutely. <laughs> that's 100%. just going to be our new that's radio. That's going everywhere. Yeah. Producer Thim here. Thanks for listening to part one of our interview with John Green. Tune in next week for part two. You do not want to miss their choices for Battle Royale. If you want to follow John Green on Twitter, he's at John Green. And if you'd like to read some of his books, get him uh, anywhere. I guess, I mean, literally, just ev he's everywhere. He's way too popular to be on our podcast. This has been Off Track with Hinch and Rossi. 
You can stay in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram at at AskOffTrack, or you can take a screenshot of this episode and share it on your Instagram or Snapchat story. We're also taking emails, and that's at ask at offtrackpod.com and phone calls at 317-731-2372. That's ask, A-S-K, at offtrackpod.com and 317-731-2372. If we like what you have to say, we'll mention it on the next show, so you better make it good. We're also on Twitter at at Hinchtown and at Alexander Rossi, and if you want to, though we have no idea why you would, you can follow producer Thim at at the Tim Durham. The music you heard on this episode was written by Ryan Dan of Holland Patton Public Library, and the show was produced by Chris Boniello and Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate, as well as Thim himself, Tim Durham. Also Peter Vincer, Matt Monrian, and Lucy Shen at CastBox. Off Track with Hinch and Rossi is a CastBox original. CastBox is the fastest growing, highest rated podcast app on both iOS and Android, where you can find all your favorite podcasts. You can listen to Off Track with Hinch and Rossi wherever you get your podcasts, but we hope you'll give CastBox a shot, because, well, we think it's the best. We'd also like to thank Breakmaster Cylinder for the jingles. The Podglomer. A Sonic Universe. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.